listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. majority of workers and their families, the Gilded Age brought increasing economic insecurity in a churning national economy. The Depression of 1873 through 1878 was followed by a sharp recession in 1883 through 1885, and another deep depression that stretched from the spring of 1893 through most of 1897. Even the relatively good years between depressions and recessions, working people suffered repeated wage cuts and layoffs. At the same time, government officials serviced the interest of their business friends. In 1886, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that corporations were entitled to the same protections guaranteed to citizens under the 14th Amendment. State courts nullified laws that limited hours of labor, set minimum wages, or otherwise restricted employers' rights. Judges routinely issued injunctions against strikes, demonstrations, boycotts, and organizing drives. In 1890, the richest 1% of Americans had a combined annual income larger than the poorest 50%. Captains of finance and industry feasted at lavish banquets. The guests at one dinner puffed cigarettes wrapped in $100 bills. At another, rare black pearls were tucked into oysters served as appetizers. Workers, meanwhile, scavenged for firewood. Each summer, millionaires caught the nightly ferry from Fall Rivers, Massachusetts to their summer homes in Newport, Rhode Island. As the ferry pulled out, passengers could see mill workers on the beaches digging for clams to supplement their meager diets. In immigrant ghettos like New York City's Lower East Side, children in tenement flats with little daylight, less ventilation, and no running water. The consensus of 1880 counted more than a million wage workers under 16 years of age, while millionaires built mansions modeled on European castles. Many families had no shelter at all. In cities after city, homeless people lined up every night to sleep in police stations. Capitalists did not have to rely on natural law alone. They could buy favors from legislators and judges. State legislators passed a raft of anti-labor statutes that made Picking in strikes illegal and authorized corporations to use their own police in company towns. 
Anything an employer did to discourage unions short of mayhem and murder was a perfectly legal defense of his property right. As in the past, labor activists were repeatedly indicted for conspiracy. Prosecutors did not have to prove criminal intent or action under the law. The mere existence of a combination of workers violated an employer's freedom to run a business in a profitable manner. Because conspiracy trials were inefficient, they took time, required witnesses, and left it to juries to render a verdict. In 1877, a new, more streamlined legal device appeared. The labor injunction applied first to striking railroad workers. Injunctions had several advantages over conspiracy indictments. They were issued by courts, where judges alone determined all issues of fact and law and decided what actions constitute contempt of court. In September 1880, a labor newspaper in Detroit predicted that the quiet of the past three years would prove to be the calm before the storm. Labor is waking from its long slumber. The rising giant is just now stretching and will make its strength felt in every phase of American life. These were prophetic words. The 1880s and 1890s saw unprecedented levels of labor organizing, strike militancy, and political action by working people, initiatives aimed first and foremost at curbing the power of capitalist monopoly. The Union's victory in the Civil War cleared the way for the swift expansion of American industry and railroads drove the trend. The first transcontinental line was completed in 1869. By the late 1890s, more than 100,000 miles of new tracks had produced the largest rail system in the world. The massive construction rippled through feeder industries such as lumber and iron. Metal mining proliferated in the West. Farming and ranching took more and more land. The South planted about 9 million acres of cotton in the early 1870s about 24 million by the late 1890s. Annual wheat production in the north central states rose from 67 million bushels in 1869 to 307 million in 1899. Meanwhile, in the Rocky Mountain states, wool production zoomed from 1 million to 123 million pounds a year. Much of the land newly devoted to farming and grazing came from the railroads. They sold vast amounts to small homesteaders and to agribusinesses like the Miller and Lux partnership that owned more than one million acres in California's San Joaquin Valley. About 150 million acres of the railroad's land came from the government, which took it from Native Americans by fiat or by deadly force. Federal campaigns against Indians had resumed during the Civil War. In 1863 through 1864, in Arizona, U.S. troops destroyed Navajos, sheep, cornfields, and orchards, then rounded up 8,500 starving people for a long march to a prison camp in New Mexico, where they were held for years before returning to Arizona under a new treaty. Indian Wars continued throughout the Gilded Age. In 1870, 
Modocs left their reservations in Oregon to return home to Northern California, where they fought the army in 1872 through 73 before surrendering and exile to Oklahoma. In 1871, Cherokee resistance to reservation confinement started the Apache War in New Mexico and Arizona. It ended in 1886 when Geronimo's band was captured, imprisoned in Florida until 1894, transferred to Oklahoma, and finally dispersed to several small southwestern reservations in 1913. Some relocations were accomplished without wars. Pawnees and Poncas from Nebraska, Comanches from Wyoming, Poncawas from Texas, all were moved to Indian territories in Oklahoma. The federal government also seized Indian lands by statute. In 1887, the General Allotment Act, known as the Dawes Act, divided tribal lands into individual holdings, assigning 160 acres to each head of a family and 80 acres to each single adult. The government then bought unassigned land and opened it to settlers. In 1891 through 92, 3.9 million acres, part of the Sauk and Fox, Potawatomic, Shawnee, and Cheyenne Arapaho reservations were taken in Oklahoma alone. The regions developed unequally. Monopoly capitalists headquartered in the Northeast dominated development in the South and West. Southern and Western farmers, usually served by a single railroad, paid top dollar to transport crop to market. In 1896, the average prices for farm products was half of what it had been in 1870. In the Cotton Belt and on the Great Plains, many family farms went bankrupt. Kansas alone saw 11,000 farm mortgage foreclosures between 1889 and 1893. Monopolists also restricted industrialization in the South and West. Higher freight charges, the iron and steel industry centered in Birmingham, and the cotton textile industry in the Carolina Piedmont were not only smaller than their counterparts, but also paid significantly lower wages and used more child labor. In 1869, 25% of textile workers in North Carolina were under the age 16, compared to 5% in Massachusetts. San Francisco was the West's only manufacturing center. Most of the region's economy was designed to supply eastern factories with raw or semi-processed materials. Agricultural produce, lumber, cattle, wool, coal, and smelted metal ores. As industrial capitalism expanded, so did the number of wage workers. By 1900, they were numbered about 18 million, up from 6.7 million in 1870, of the U.S. population of 76 million. Immigration was a key source of working-class growth and diversity from 1873 through 1897, 10 million immigrants entered the United States more than during the previous 50 years, and they came from more places than ever before. Most immigrants came in search of better economic opportunities, 
Many planned to go back home once they had saved enough money, and quite a few did. Plans often changed, however. Some immigrants came and went back home several times. Many immigrants moved from wage work to self-employment. Many immigrants found it hard to save any money, especially women who were paid even lower wages. Immigrant groups generally clustered in particular occupations. Chinese men were the majority of migrant farm laborers in California in the 1880s and 1890s. Many Irish women entered domestic service. Slavic men worked mainly in coal mines, steel mills, and railroad maintenance. Italians and Russian Jews of both sexes tended to concentrate in the garment industry. Puerto Ricans and Cubans often worked in cigar factories in New York City and Tampa and Key West, Florida. 90% of African Americans lived in the South, where they slowly moved from sharecropping into jobs paying an individual wage. Their choices were severely limited. As of 1890, agriculture and domestic service employed the vast bulk of African-American workers, 96% of the women and 85% of men. Exceptions included stevedores and teamsters in New Orleans, iron foundry workers in Birmingham, brick makers in Richmond, coal miners in West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Alabama, teachers in black schools, and clerical sales employees of black-owned businesses. The anti-Chinese movement accelerated. In October of 1880, a white mob drove out the residents of Denver's Chinatown, lynching one man along the way. In 1881, Texas railroad workers, Chianos and Apaches, as well as whites, repeatedly assaulted Chinese co-workers. In 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, barring the immigration of Chinese laborers for 10 years. The violence continued in September 1885, after Chinese and Welsh coal miners brawled in Rock Springs, Wyoming. A mob attacked the Chinese section of the mining camp, killing 28 and chasing the rest into the wilderness. White ouster committees drove Chinese from Tacoma, Washington in November 1885 and from Seattle the following February. Working people from every background and occupation had more in common than just dependency on wages. Everyone was affected by the economic crisis that defined the Gilded Age. Black communities harbored a rich history of resistance to slavery and included many veterans of the Civil War and radical reconstruction. Working women sustained other activist traditions too, like the mill workers who joined with genteel labor reformers to agitate for 10-hour day laws in the 1840s. Women trading unionists in Chicago came together with middle-class groups to form the Illinois Women's Alliance in 1888. Mexican-American resistance to Anglo domination continued in the Southwest and increasingly targeted corporate power and privilege. In the tradition of Chinese railroad workers, 1867 strike for a higher wage. Chinese farm workers organized against unequal pay Fruit pickers in California's Santa Clara Valley went on strike in 1880, as did hops pickers in Kern County in 1884. In 1890, 
California newspapers reported that Chinese immigrants had formed a labor union that demanded a dollar fifty a day for work in orchards and vineyards. The labor movement of the Gilded Age tapped into all of these legacies. And if labor organizations sometimes fail to unite even their own ranks, workplace and community solidarity provided a bedrock for resistance to corporate assaults on labor and dominance of American life. The largest and most influential organization of the Gilded Age was the Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor, founded in 1869 as a secret organization of garment workers led by Philadelphia tailor Uriah Stevens. The Knights' basic principle was solidarity, their motto, an injury to one is an injury to all. The Knights proposed to replace the wage system with a cooperative commonwealth Workers would be their own masters. Only then, proclaimed the Declaration of Principles, could they have the full employment of wealth they create, sufficient leisure in which to develop their intellectual, moral, and social faculties, all of the benefits, recreation, and pleasure of association, any word, to share in the gains and honors of advancing civilization. The Knights of Labor became the most inclusive U.S. labor organization of the 19th century. It welcomed to its anti-monopoly coalition all of the producing classes, not only wage workers, but also housewives, farmers, clergymen, shopkeepers, doctors, writers, editors, and other professionals. Employers could join too. If they had once been wage earners and now treated their employees fairly by paying good wages and observing the eight-hour day, the only groups summarily excluded were liquor dealers, stockbrokers, bankers, professional gamblers, and corporate lawyers. The Knights formally admitted women in 1882 after women shoe workers in Philadelphia had organized their own assembly. In 1886, when women made up 10% of the order's membership, the General Assembly established a national women's department headed by Leonora Berry an Irish-born hosiery mill operative who led a female trade assembly in Amsterdam, New York. The order was the first U.S. labor organization to endorse female suffrage, and the local assemblies hosted many lectures on women's rights. The order also welcomed immigrants, translated its literature into various languages, and chartered numerous foreign language assemblies, with one major exception. Though the New York City and Philadelphia District tried to organize Chinese assemblies in 1867 and 1887, Western districts were deeply involved in the anti-Chinese movement, and the organization's national spokesmen often proclaimed that the Chinese must go. When Wyoming Knights led the mob that massacred Chinese in Rock Springs in 1885, Terence Powderly blamed the violence on Chinese evasion of the Exclusion Act. Black and white cooperation was more impressive. The Order's Journal of Unite Labor declared in 1880, we should be false to every principle of our order should we exclude from membership any man who gains his living by honest toil on account of his color or creed. By 1886, African-American Knights numbered at least 60,000. They made up about half the membership in Virginia, North Carolina, and Arkansas, and a third of the whole Southern membership. The Knights of Labor sponsored social and educational programs, 
ran candidates for office in over 200 cities and towns in 1885 through 86 and sponsored hundreds of consumer and producer cooperatives. On Saturday, May 1st, about 350,000 workers at more than 11,000 establishments across the country went on strike for the eight-hour day. In Chicago, 65,000 strikers staged weekend rallies and parades. Counterattacks began on Monday. Police fired into a group of killers at the McCormick Harvesters Works and killed at least four workers. Anarchists, leaders of the city's eight-hour coalition, called for a protest meeting held the night of May 4th at Haymarket Square. A few thousand showed up, but the crowd had dwindled to a few hundred by the time policemen arrived to disperse the gathering, a little after 10 o'clock. As the police entered the square, someone, the culprit was never identified, threw a bomb that killed one officer and wounded another 66, seven of whom later died. For several weeks, police rounded up labor activists by the hundreds. Meeting halls and residents were raided. Entire families were jailed. Evidence of incendiary plotting was seized and planted when it could not be found. On May 27th, eight anarchists, August Spies, Albert Parsons, Adolf Fisher, George Ingle, Louis Ling, and Samuel Felden, Oscar Neb, and Michael Schwab were indicted for conspiracy to commit murder. Their trial began on June 21st. Only two of the defendants, Spies and Felden, had been present when the explosion occurred, but the prosecution did not care who actually threw the bomb. Anarchists had been indicted for their radicalism and militant leadership of the eight-hour movement, not for the actions in Haymarket Square. The jury convicted all of the defendants. Neeb was sentenced to 15 years, and the others were condemned to death. On October 1886, Trade assemblies of meat-packing workers led a strike of 25,000 at Chicago's Union Stockyard, which had adopted the eight-hour day that spring and now declared a return to 10 hours. Powderly told the striking assemblies to go back to work. When they defied him, he threatened to revoke their K of L charters. Smelling blood, the company broke off negotiations and announced that it would no longer employ any member of the Knights of Labor. A week later, the strikers conceded defeat, and the Meat Packers Assembly soon died out. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.